Hello and welcome to edition number 1876 of the Whitney Talking News, which we're recording in the High Street Methodist Church in Whitney on Thursday the 12th of August. I'm Nigel James and I've edited this edition. Besides me at the controls we have Eric Imerson and this week we have items from the Whitney Gazette. Our two readers are Marnie Leach and John Ashwell. So let's have our first story about Whitney Festival, which is going to be read by Marnie. Still hopes for small event to meet demand. Time has run out for the Whitney Music Festival to be staged this month, with council negotiations over licensing being extended after challenges made by the public. The scaled-down event, which would have featured ten local bands, was due to take place on Saturday, August the 21st, on Church Green. It is now hoped it can be rescheduled for September. Festival Chair Eric Marshall said, It comes down to licensing. It's a due process that needs to be gone through to enable the event to go ahead. It's important that everyone has their views heard. He said he understood two people had come forward with concerns. A statement from organisers shared on social media said the postponement was due to ongoing negotiations with the council about certain aspects of the festival. It said, In light of COVID-19 restrictions being lifted... Whitney Music Festival was once again in a realistic position to host an event. We have tried our very best on a heavily reduced timeline to produce an event this year for the residents of Whitney. But at this time, we are currently still in negotiations with the local authorities over certain aspects of the event. This means we are unable to go ahead on our scheduled date and are hoping to rearrange a new date as soon as possible. Unfortunately, this process cannot be completed before the original date, hence the postponement. Mr Marshall said it was never going to be the festival as we normally do it. It was about putting on a small event close to town, to come in, to give the town and the shops, restaurants and pubs a bumper day, and to support local businesses. He said a grant of 9750 from Whitney County Council was going to pay for it. On the festival's webpage, disappointed Whitney residents pointed out that many other Much bigger festivals like Reading and Leeds have been able to go ahead and accuse district councillors of being killjoys. Mr Marshall said that's a complete misunderstanding. Whitney Town Council and West Oxfordshire District Council have been super supportive. The district council wants this to happen. They and the Town Council have been incredibly supportive and we we are having long and constructive conversations with them now. In place of a live event, the Whitney Music Festival Reconnecting 
was broadcast on YouTube, Windrush Radio, music streaming service Mixcloud, and video live streaming service Twitch in June. The live festival was cancelled in 2020 due to the national lockdown. In pre-COVID times, the Lees Recreation Ground has been transformed into a field of fun and music for the festival. In 2019, it was estimated it drew a record-breaking crowd of more than 15,000. And still on a festival theme, we have an article headed Revelers Celebrate Their New Freedom at Festival. More than 20,000 music lovers danced, sang and celebrated freedom at Oxfordshire's first major festival for almost two years. Wilderness Festival returned to its home at Cornbury Park near Chalbury with a Covid-safe event which has been hailed as a huge success and a sign that life is returning to normal after more than a year of lockdowns and restrictions. Even sporadic torrential showers and blustery winds failed to dampen the spirits of revellers who descended on the West Oxfordshire site in a suitably sparky array of colourful costumes. Headline sets by, fire, by live drum and bass act rudimental rapper Loyal Karna and electronic artist Jamie pulled in large crowds on the main stage and late-night DJ sets in a spectacular illuminated wooded valley kept dance fans on their feet into the night. More pursuits came in the form of talks and discussions, and letters live, spoken word performance featuring guest artists. But despite the crowds, festival-goers said they felt safe, and had faith in stringent Covid restrictions which involved people testing before entry. Ed Nix from Chipping Norton said, Everyone seemed so happy to finally be at a festival. Even the rain didn't affect the vibe. Nobody cared about the weather that much, and they were just happy to be back at a festival. Tom Edwards from North Oxford said, There was a real sense of freedom, especially on a Friday when the sun shone and the sight filled up with beautiful people. Many of us wondered if this time would ever come after such a bleak year, so it was a very special moment when the gates opened. Josh Spite from East Oxford said, It has been an awful year, and it felt so good to be back in this beautiful place, with lakes, lawns and trees, listening to some of the amazing music, even if the sun ducked out of the party from time to time. The success of Wilderness will be welcomed by the music and events industries, which have suffered more than most in the pandemic. It will also have been received with relief by Blur bassist Alex James, who is holding his own three-day festival. The big festival on his farm in Kingham over the August bank holiday weekend. Rory Bett of Wilderness said we have been thrilled to throw wide the gates to the stunning Cornbury Park estate once more to a sold-out show. The response has been humbling. New coffee shop scheme for town centre shop site. Coffee number one, which is owned by Cafe Nero, 
is applying for planning permission to create a new shop in Whitney. The site at 15 Market Square was formerly occupied by Well Worth It, discount kitchenware shop, and has been vacant for over a year. Under planning changes brought in during September 2020, buildings on high streets and town centres can be repurposed without the need for planning permission. The application says the change of use from a retail unit to a coffee shop will reflect the changing retail requirements of our high streets, injecting vibrancy and vitality back into the building and surrounding area. The external layout would remain the same, with double entrance doors and a sympathetic paint finish sensitive to both the Grade 2 listed building and surrounding conservation area. It says, the the application states, the proposed coffee shop will have a spacious layout with the internal seating areas creating an attractive, welcoming and inviting atmosphere for customers. There would be minor alterations to the ground floor, including a new counter bar, bench seating and a unisex and disabled WC. Internally, the cafe would accommodate about 105 covers with four more outside. C twenty one forward slash O two six O six forward slash L B C on the WO DC website. Council issues illegal puppy dealer warning as sales boom. A council is warning pet lovers in Oxfordshire to carefully choose who they do business with amid warnings that a pandemic boom in dog ownership is allowing unscrupulous online dealers to profit. Cherwell District Council is, re- is reminding residents that the law states that anyone dealing in dogs for profit in the district must have a licence from the council. The authority has taken one licence application from a dog breeder during the pandemic. Councillor Andrew McHugh, lead member uh, for Health and Wellbeing, said... We are witnessing a trend towards dealing pets through social media. Sellers need a licence, even if their business is based at home or or they sell animals online. If you are buying a puppy on the strength of a brief interaction with somebody you have met online, you have no guarantee that the dealer has been following the law, or indeed that the puppy has not been stolen. It is a criminal offence to sell puppies, without the necessary licence. On the other hand, if customers buy from a licensed dealer, they have uh, been inspected by our environmental health officers to ensure they meet welfare standards. Breeders need to display their licence at their place of business, and residents can also check whether they are licensed on the council's website. A good news dog story. Missing Roly is back with owner, 76 days after being stolen. A missing dog that disappeared almost two months ago has been found safe and well. 
Roly, the Springer Spaniel, was stolen out of his owner's van when left in a Sainsbury's car park. The car of the individual believed to have stolen the dog was later spotted that day in the Oxford area. Now, 76 days after going missing, Roly has been reunited with his worried owners, Peter and Stephanie Wolfe. Mrs Wolfe said he was found by a member of the public who had seen Roly's Facebook page and poster. He was convinced it was Roly. <clears throat> the dog then had his microchip checked by a vet who confirmed it was in fact Roly. She added, it is absolutely amazing. All these people looking out for him has certainly paid off. And the fact the man had already been looking for Roly, it was fantastic. We could not quite believe it. When he saw us, his whole body was wagging his tail and rolled over for his tummy to be tickled. He was so pleased to see us. The owner said Roly seemed well fed, did not appear to be anxious, and it did not seem as though he'd been mistreated. County joins Council's club in Carbon Zero Aim. Oxfordshire County Council has stepped up its role in global efforts to tackle climate change by joining a national organisation of councils with the same aims. UK 100 is the only network for locally elected leaders who have pledged to switch to 100% clean energy by 2050. Within the network, the Net Zero Local Leadership Club is doing everything within its power to get to net zero by 2045 at the latest. Council leader Liz Lefman said UK 100 works closely with elected representatives and policy experts to develop solutions to the challenges local leaders all over the country face and to build public support for the transition and changes that are in front of us. As a new administration at the County Council, we have placed efforts to tackle climate change right at the very heart of our agenda. Membership of this organisation is an example of how we are seeking to up our game. The need to take action is immediate and our urgency reflects this. Motorists warned of impending MOT rush. Owners of cars due an MOT next month are being urged to book early because of a surge in demand. The MOT exemption introduced following the coronavirus outbreak has increased the number of vehicles which must pass the test in September to stay on the road. Cars, motorcycles and light vans due an MOT between March the 30th and July the 31st, 2020, in Britain, were given a six-month extension due to the nationwide lockdown. Some 20% of 14,688 UK motorists surveyed by the AA said they took advantage of the policy indicating that more than 5.5 million cars had a delayed MOT. 
Many drivers eventually had their vehicles tested in September 2020, meaning they must book another test for next month. They will be competing for slots with the owners of the 339,000 new cars bought in September 2018, which will be due their first MOT. AA Head of Roads Policy Jack Cousins said, With more than 5.5 million cars deferring an MOT, it is crucial that they are tested to ensure that they are safe to use. <clears throat> MOT centres are already feeling the strain, and with Super September looming, savvy drivers can get ahead of the game. Don't delay. Book today. Usually people leave booking their MOT to the last possible moment. Drivers won't have that luxury this time. Drivers can be fined up to £1,000 for using a vehicle without a valid MOT. And now we come to Editor's Choice. In the absence of a live reflection, I've proposed to read a reflection by the writer and broadcaster Frank Topping. This one is entitled Laughter. At nine and a half, though claiming nearly ten, in a boating pool in Rill... I learned a lesson about friendship, about a certain kind of laughter, and something about boats and water. I learned how to row and caught several crabs, discovered the consequence of balancing with one foot on land and the other in a boat. That was when they laughed. As I stood in the mud, grey flannel shorts wet and clinging, sodden socks that squelched beneath my toes, and a face crimson with shame. I heard their laughter, at least a noise that sounded like laughter, a noise that mocked and jeered and fell upon my ears with the strength of blows. Yet amid the guffaws and cackles of derision, one face looked down with nine-year-old concern. One hand reached out to help me up the bank, and then he smiled, the smile of a friend, the rueful smile that said, Hard luck. I have heard since then so much laughter, so many smiles, scornful laughs, sarcastic smiles, titters, sniggers and snorts, heads thrown back in sheer delight, tears of joy, and the honest open laughter of those who saw the funny side of themselves. But of all the hoots and giggles, I doubt if I shall ever see a smile more welcome than the grin that said, whatever happens... I am your friend. Lord, as I speak and listen, let me not laugh at another's expense or smile at innuendo of gossip or malice. Let me never misuse my sense of humour. Let me be loyal to friends, even in laughter. Humour is a gift, a kind of safety valve. Let me use it wisely. Let all my laughing and joking be open and kind, and grateful. Our next story is about HGVs and the damage that they're causing, and this is going to be read by John. Villagers pledge to fight HGVs routing. 
Villagers along the Windrush Valley have pledged to step up a fight to have the Burford Town Centre weight limit withdrawn after a County Council decision to keep the HGV ban until February. A trial weight limit order went live in August 2020, with lorries exceeding 7.5 tonnes forced to find alternative routes. Many residents have called for a ban since the early 1980s, with the measures expected to benefit road safety, tourism and the environment. The order bans HGVs from the entire high street between the A40 Burford roundabout to the A424-A361 Fulbrook mini roundabout. They are also uh, be unable to use Barnes Lane from its junction at Burford roundabout as well as Tanner's Lane from the A40. But after the council's decision to keep the trial running, Jan de Haldevang, committee member of the Windrush Valley Traffic Action Group, said, despite OCC's cabinet member for transport and infrastructure stating publicly that our objections to the Burford scheme were well argued and convincing, the county have nevertheless allowed the weight restrictions at Burford to continue. Town residents in favour of the ban say keeping out HGVs will help preserve Burford's £15 million tourism industry and reduce air pollution levels, as well as lessening the damage to listed buildings, which make up 94% of High Street, the highest percentage in the UK. But Mr de Havadang said... This is causing untold damage to the many minor roads across the Windrush Valley and beyond as drivers seek to find alternative routes. Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire are are farming counties and farmers depend on haulage contractors to move livestock to grain and other materials. Some farms have found themselves almost marooned with no serviceable HGV route available. Local businesses are badly affected as well, with some journeys being double that time that they were when the A361 through Burford was open to everyone. So much for OCC's green credentials, as hundreds of lorry movements are now burning huge additional amounts of diesel and pumping many tonnes of nitrous oxide fumes into our towns and villages. Burford Town Council have long campaigned for the restriction but were consistently refused by the County Council until Burford offered to underwrite the costs of the traffic regulation order, the signage and the enforcement process, he added. Colin Carrot, a former OCC traffic engineer, said the Burford ban is at odds with the County Council's own transport policies. It was strongly opposed by the Thames Valley Police and it's unfair to those local businesses who are not included in Burford's exemption permit scheme. The Action Group has the support of 14 town and parish councils, one district council, several farms and more than 50 businesses. Cabinet members for Travel and Development Strategy Duncan Enright decided to continue with the ban until February to allow for further monitoring. He said the decision to review arrangements regarding the weight limit was caused by concern about displacement of heavy goods traffic to neighbouring river crossings 
our monitoring work in the coming months will determine whether changes are needed to the routing or rerouting of freight traffic. Organised gangs raiding farmyards for equipment. The overall cost of rural theft in Oxfordshire fell by nearly 15% to an estimated 675,000 in 2020, according to figures from rural insurer NFU Mutual. However, highly organised criminals continued to plague Oxfordshire's farmyards over the pandemic, stealing high-value farming global positioning systems, GPS, agricultural vehicles such as quad bikes and tools. NFU Mutual saw the UK-wide cost of claims for GPS almost double last year, with the crime fuelled by demand across the globe. And other rural crimes, such as dog attacks on livestock and fly-tipping, rose sharply across the UK. The value of sheep and cattle attacked by dogs shot up by 10% in 2020, in a year which saw a surge in people buying pets and countryside visits. The insurer's claims data shows the situation continues to worsen as the cost of attacks rose 50% in the first quarter of 2021 compared to the same period last year. Meanwhile, fly-tipping in fields, gateways and country lanes reached epidemic proportions as waste recycling centres restricted access, leaving farmers to deal with the clean-up and risks to their health and that of their livestock and the environment. Across English regions, the decrease in the cost of rural theft in the southeast, minus 19%, was broadly in line with the national picture, minus 20.3%. Harvey Merrins, NFU mutual agent in Whitney, said, Coronavirus restrictions, beefed up security on farms and rural policing, provided a welcome fall in rural thefts last year. While lockdown may have locked some criminals out of the countryside, rural crime hasn't gone away. Thieves are now returning, armed with new tactics and targets. As the economic impact of the pandemic bites, we are very concerned that rural theft may escalate significantly. Last year saw sharp rises in other crimes, such as dog attacks on livestock, which caused appalling suffering to farm animals and huge anxiety for farmers and their families as they dealt with the aftermath. Organised criminal gangs also continued to target farmyards for high-value GPS systems, quad bikes and tractors, with the UK cost of agricultural vehicle theft remaining at over £9 million, only a 2% drop in cost from 2019. 
NFU Mutual said it is investing over £430,000 in targeted rural security schemes this year. Mr Merrins added, The extra funding will help police join forces with local farmers, set up covert, covert operations and recover more stolen machinery from countries across Europe. With more and more people using the countryside, we are urging the public to support farmers and rural communities by reporting suspicious sightings and crimes to the police. Thug attacked his partner and had a wee in the police van. A drunken thug attacked his girlfriend in the street, threatened the off-duty PCSO who witnessed it, and then had a wee in a police van. Kevin Jones, 42, was told by the magistrates hearing his case that they had narrowly narrowly decided not to send him straight to prison. Imposing a 16-week sentence suspended for two years, Chairman of the Bench Julian Holliday said... You need to know that if, and if you really do need to know this, if you commit any further offences, anything that's remotely similar, any threats, any violence, any assaults, then you will be more than likely to go to prison. Prosecutor Maddie Charlesworth said that an off-duty PCSO was in Oxford on May the 15th when he saw Jones shouting obscenities at his partner who was asking for her phone. The officer followed the couple concerned that the... uh, Sorry, he was concerned that the argument might escalate. Jones was said to have grabbed the woman from behind and threw her to the ground. The PCSO intervened and got in between the woman and Jones, who was shouting, She's my girlfriend. We're fine. A backup arrived... And, as the officers were waiting for a custody van to take the defendant to the police station, Jones started making threats to the PCSO, who had stepped in. Muzz Charlesworth said that the thug warned the officer he'd be stabbed up. He was taken in a custody van to the police station, and while still in the van's cage, said he planned to urinate in the vehicle. Despite being warned he would be arrested, Jones followed through with the threat, the prosecutor said. A small wrap of cocaine was found on him when he was searched at the police station. Interviewed by police, Jones accepted that he pushed his partner to the ground, but had done so to restrain her. He said he had drunk a lot of alcohol and really needed to go to the toilet, and the officer had not let him. He denied the cocaine was his. Jones's partner had not provided a statement in support of the prosecution the court heard. Speaking in his own defence at the Oxfordshire Magistrates' Court, Jones said he was sorry about the whole thing and added, I was drunk and I was stupid. He said he disagreed with parts of the prosecution account. The justices were told he had moved into new accommodation in Carterton but was not working. Jones of Alverscott Road, Carterton, pleaded guilty at an earlier hearing to assault, threatening behaviour, criminal damage and possession of cocaine. He must pay £50 compensation to the police 
and a £128 victim surcharge. And now it's quiz time. First of all, the answers to last week's quiz. And question one was, name one of the events which is new to this year's Olympic Games. Skateboarding. Skateboarding is one. Surfing, karate, sport climbing, baseball and softball. These were all dropped after 2008, but Japan chose for them to be reinstated this year. Question two. Where did Dr. William Penny Brooks introduce a local version of the Olympic Games in 1850? And the clue is one of the mascots in the 2012 Games was named after this place. And the answer is Much Wenlock. Question three. At which hospital in 1948 did Dr. Gutman organise wheelchair sports which were the forerunners of the Paralympics? And the answer is... Stoke Mandeville. Stoke Mandeville, that's right. Question four. In ancient Greece, the Olympics were dedicated to the chief god on Mount Olympus. What was his name and who was his wife and sister? Zeus. Zeus, yes, and his wife was... Mrs. Zeus. Mrs. <laughs> Hera. Right. Now, what's, what are the Roman equivalents for this god and goddess? Jupiter. Jupiter and Diana. Juno. Juno. Jupiter and Juno. So what is missing? What's the missing word in the title of the play by Sean O'Casey? Blank and the Paycock. Juno. Juno again. That's right. And now to this week's quiz, which is a real mixed bag. Question one, and please don't shout the answers out. Which island lies between Italy and Corsica? Question two. Turpentine is obtained from which tree? Question three. Which sport uses the terms Christie's and traversing? Question four. Stem, straight and lazy daisy are all types of what? Question five. What is the last name of Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz? There's some blank faces around here. (laughs) And the answers will be given to you next week. Now, still staying on an Olympic theme, our next item, which is going to be read by Marnie, also follows this theme. Artist drops his work at the Tokyo Olympics. While artists might be accustomed to painting backdrops, one Oxfordshire painter has created a drop of a different kind. Nigel Fletcher from Sibford Ferris created five different pieces of art depicting Mount Fuji, which have now been used at the Tokyo Olympics. His paintings of the famous volcano have together been coined the Mount Fuji Drop while being used in the equestrian cross-country events. Mr Fletcher, 67, was afforded the opportunity by his son, Carl, who works as a course builder for equestrian events. At the beginning of last year, before the Olympics were postponed due to the pandemic, Mr Fletcher was asked by his son if he could paint something for the course. Mr Fletcher, who has been a professional painter 
for 25 years, said, Usually, I'm painting a landscape in the field, but this time I was in a barn using images of Mount Fuji online. It was quite difficult to set up, as normally I'd work with an easel and paint something a foot and a half wide. Instead, I had these six feet wide wooden panels. It was a completely different working process. I wanted them all to look different, using different angles and capturing Mount Fuji at different times of the year. I was using big brushes and just letting rip with them. It was really good fun and I enjoyed it. It took a week for Mr Fletcher to complete the paintings before they were sent off to Tokyo. He said once I'd finished, they had to be wrapped very carefully before being sent to Tokyo. Most of the course was put together last year before it got cancelled. Despite the postponement, the Olympics is now well and truly underway this summer. Without fans, however. It's a bit unfortunate there'll be no spectators who will be able to see all the hard work that's gone into this, said Mr Fletcher. However, seeing it on the TV was amazing. It brought it home. When you get these famous Olympians jumping over the fences, it's quite surreal. And I've had plenty of people get in touch It's quite bizarre, really. I've never done anything on this scale before. I did a big mural at the entrance to Banbury Rail Station back in 2001. That took three weeks, and I got all the commuters going to and from London every day checking it out and asking how it was progressing. When the Olympics finish... Mr Fletcher is unsure on what will happen to the paintings that started off in a barn in Hook Norton and appeared on televisions across the globe. I'm not sure what will happen with them afterwards. Whether they get auctioned off or not, we shall see, he said. Plots ready for gardeners. Applications have flooded in for the first new allotments in Whitney for over 30 years. Barry Jessel, chair of Whitney Allotment Society, was handed the keys to the plots at Windrush Place by Mayor of Whitney, Joyce Aitman, while two of the new pot, uh, plot holders were first on the site, uh, eager to start cultivating. The society has been overwhelmed by interest in the 55 plots, which include a small number of half and smaller plots aimed at novice gardeners. Each has its own tool shed and a water butt, and there is a composting toilet, compost bins and a shared secured container. A building which will act as a social meeting point is to be installed in the next few months. There are two plots for gardeners with less mobility with their own parking spaces, accessible tool sheds and accessible composting toilet. Whitney Town Council, along with contractors, worked during unseasonable weather over the spring and a heat wave in July. 
The site is part of Whitney Town Council's commitment to act on climate change. Melanie Jones, chair of the Halls, Cemeteries and Allotments Committee, said they, that she was looking forward to seeing the fruits of everyone's labours. She said, I am very pleased that the new allotments are now ready for people to start getting productive. And a comment regarding uh, allotments from the letters page is headed up allotment dismay. Earlier in the year, when my wife informed me there were to be some new allotments near where we live on Deer Park, I asked her to put my name down for one. On trying to get added to the waiting list for the new Windrush Place allotments, it stated there were 160 people waiting for allocation of a plot. In the meantime, I have watched with interest as the allotments have been developed. Tarmac car parking, small sheds on each plot, paths between the plots, all were looking good, and I was excited at the prospect of perhaps getting allocated one. Last weekend, however, I took myself for a walk to inspect the plots and was appalled to see none of the plots have been allocated and are now so overgrown you would need a rotavator on each plot before they could be used. I am not sure who is responsible for allocation of the said plots. I hope not the local taxpayer, because quite frankly, after all the expense of building them, to not allocate them and to let them get into such a condition is criminal. The money would have been better spent on repairing the roads around the Deer Park estate, which are now dreadful. Perhaps there are others who share my view over a complete waste of money on this project, and what must be an eyesore for the residents who live opposite and have to look out at this folly. And that letter about allotments was written by Mr B. Gardner. Wanted long-term site to keep NHS giants on display. The artist who created a tribute to the NHS by making 300 life-size workers in a park is looking for a permanent site for the display. The Standing with Giants installation, located in South Park, was made to celebrate the work frontline staff have done throughout the pandemic. Artist Dan Barton, who is from Stanton Harcourt, near Whitney, said, We wanted to honour the NHS staff who are currently fighting for our freedom especially those who lost their lives fighting on the front line. I want to show their families that we will do our best to protect their memory. Standing with the Giants is a non-profit community project that used the installation to raise money for NHS charities. The South Park exhibition has now been packed up, however, In the 30 days, over 2,000 people visited the Giants. Mr Barton added, It was quite incredible how many people turned up, and that was with limiting the number of people coming. One overwhelming thing people said to me as they left was, Thank you so much for doing this. The reaction was wonderful and I realised we do not actually have meaningful spaces in this country to go, grieve 
and reflect. The group is now looking for a permanent site to install the NHS tribute. The figures were made from recycled building waste and cut out by volunteers using 60 different designs. Original photos of NHS staff, such as doctors, nurses and paramedics, were used and adjusted and manipulated to create different characters. Mr Barton added, We are a not-for-profit community project, even though we have been trying to get funding, however, because we raised money for other charities, we are struggling to find funding ourselves. In the past, Standing with the Giants has created tributes for those who have served in the war, including one in November last year at Blenheim Palace, that helped raise more than £38,000 for the Royal British Legion. Standing with the Giants hopes to install more exhibitions honouring soldiers and other frontline workers later this year. Now 84 wild animals are being kept privately in a zoological park. There are 84 dangerous wild animals being kept privately in West Oxfordshire. Research from an animal charity shows. They include lions, wolves and tigers, all kept by one private owner. A survey by Born Free, a charity focused on animal welfare and conservation, revealed 3,951 dangerous wild animals are licensed to be kept privately in Britain. Born Free said all 84 animals in West Oxfordshire are owned by Jim Club, who featured in Ross Kemp's ITV documentary Britain's Tiger Kings. Although the site is called Haythrop Zoological Gardens, the charity said it was not a licensed zoo and therefore was required to hold dangerous wild animal licences. Licensed zoos are exempt, as they are covered by the Zoo Licensing Act of 1981. Born Free curates a map on its website entitled Dangerous Wild Animals Who Lives Next Door, shows what has been, or yes, what has been licensed. In West Oxfordshire, there are American Alligators 3, uh, lizards 2, black bucks 5, camels 10, cobras 2, cuvier's dwarf caimans 2, agile monster 1, kangaroos 7, leopard 6, tigers 2, lions 7, macaws 8, morlets uh, crocodiles 2, pygmy hippos 2, Ring-tailed lemurs, eight. Tigers, seven. Wolves, five. And zebras, five. Staying on the theme of wild animals, on trail of mysterious big cats, wild sightings. Since at least the 1990s, there have been multiple reports of big cat activity in Oxfordshire. From mysterious black panthers stalking the countryside to cats the size of dogs creeping through gardens, 
residents have had their fair share of strange animal sightings. These are just some of the strange stories from our, archi- from our archives. Could these creatures still be lurking round the, con- round the county? Bryce Norton, 2005. A suspected big cat was photographed in a field opposite the Mason's Arms pub in Burford Road, Bryce Norton, in 2005. It was one of the most famous supposed sightings of the fabled Beast of Burford. Yarnton, 2005. Ian McCormick said he was driving home to Livingstone Close in Yarnton when he stopped at a level crossing in Sandy Lane. He described how a panther walked over the railway line right in front of him. Mr McCormick said it was definitely a big cat. It was 30 yards away and I had my headlights on full beam. It never even looked at me. Faller, 2005. Eileen Russell was driving in Faller near Charlbury when a large black cat leapt across the road and forced her to slam on the brakes. She said, I wondered what the heck it was. I couldn't believe it. I was born here and I've never seen anything like it. I never believed the stories before, but I do now. It was all quite a shock. It was the size of an Alsatian, but longer. I was so amazed I had to come home and tell everybody. I don't know if they believed it. One person asked if I'd been drinking. Carswell, 2006. When looking out of her daughter's window, Joe Naylor spotted a cat-like creature stalking the fields near her house. When she snapped a photo of the animal, it ran off into the distance. She said, I was looking out of the window and I saw this black thing way off in the field. I watched it for about 10 to 15 minutes and then went to get my camera. When I got back, it was a lot closer and I managed to get a better look at it. It was just lolloping around the area. I took a picture and the flash sent it running up the field and through the woods. When I first saw the animal, I thought it was a big dog, but the tail was much longer and it looks like a big black cat. Stonesfield Common, 2015. In 2015, another big cat was spotted, but this time on Stonesfield Common near Charlbury. Dog walker Fraser Downer spotted a suspected big cat which was slinking slowly and purposefully through the long grass. He said, I watched in almost disbelief, trying to fathom out what it was, but there is simply no domestic cat big enough to match. It's not a tiger or lion, obviously, but I would liken it to a Labrador or German Shepherd size, or whatever that equates to in feline terms. I've heard stories from my village about black cats seen while deer stalking, 
but it wasn't until I told my fiancé and we read an Oxford Mail article online that I decided to call it in, for site recording purposes, really. And the last one is in Carterton, 2020. Sisters walking near RAF Bryce Norton believe they captured footage of the Beast of Burford. April Millin said, I just so happened to look up through the trees and I saw what I thought was a black Labrador dog. She explained the creature had a long tail and the sisters could see its shoulder blades as it walked. She added, it stopped and looked at us before walking away through some bushes. It was far enough in the field for us to not be able to see a domestic cat. This was a lot bigger. We could see its shiny, black, smooth-looking coat. It happened so quickly, and I'd forgotten my phone, so I asked my sister to film. Right, now it's time for the notice board. And the first thing on our notice board is to wish Gladys Bushell many happy returns for her birthday on Sunday the 15th of August. Sadly, we have to report deaths that are reported in the Whitney Gazette, and we have five of those uh, this week. Firstly, Dorothy Donald, who died on the 1st of August, aged 92. Then Mary Evans, who died on the 2nd of August, and no age given, and she came, comes from Stonesfield. Thirdly, Valerie Jobbins, uh, who died at Freeland House, and we don't have a date of death or an age for, she, for Valerie. Next, Edward Milsom, who died on the 29th of July, aged 79 years, from Hayley. And lastly, Ron Temple of Clanfield, who died on the 2nd of August, aged 95 years. Now, as well as uh, the, these notices, can I just remind you that at the end of these, this broadcast, there are the radio listings for the coming week and also TVO, TV audio description programmes. As well as listening to the USB stick you can receive from us each week, there are several other ways for you to listen to all our editions, including magazines. These include Sonata Plus, email, internet, podcast and Alexa. Full details can be seen on our website at wtn.org.uk. Just follow the link to listen live. Now our next three items are all about inspiring charity news. And the first one, headed Sunflowers, is going to be read by John. A farm is growing huge sunflowers to give people the opportunity to pick them and hand a donation to Helen and Douglas House Children's Hospice in Oxford. High Lodge Farm in Cullum, near Abingdon, will be opening its gates from Sunday, August the 8th for two weeks. There will be no entry fee to pick sunflowers, but each sunflower will cost £1, and visitors can fill a wildflower bag for £5. There will be tea, coffee, cake and ice cream on sale, from the farm's new trailer, The Toot. Helen and Douglas House Children's Hospice in Oxford provides hospice and palliative care for babies, children and young people. 
The hospice needs to raise £3.4 million each year to care for local terminally ill children at the hospice and at home. Sail out of lockdown. A 22-year-old from Abingdon who is living through and beyond cancer says he is delighted to finally experience new things after enjoying five days of sailing, high ropes, archery and much more with the Ellen MacArthur Cancer Trust. El Kami was 17 when he was diagnosed with a brain tumour and underwent more than two years of chemotherapy, radiotherapy and two major surgeries. He was among seven young people from across the UK who spent a week at Bradwell Essex Outdoors with the Trust getting back to bringing young people together after being off the water in 2020. The Ellen MacArthur Cancer Trust inspires young people aged 8 to 24 to believe in a brighter future, living through and beyond cancer. Ambulance Dispatcher takes on the world's fastest zip line. The South Central Ambulance Dispatcher is taking on the world's fastest zip line to raise money for the ambulance staff charity, known as TASC. On August 31st, Ed Higby, a patient transport dispatcher, will be travelling 1.5 kilometres at a breathtaking 100 miles an hour on Zip World's Velocity 2 zip line at Penryn State, sorry, Penryn Slate Quarry in North Wales. Mr Higby said, After an, an incredibly tough year this time, I wanted to help raise money to support my ambulance colleagues and the guys who look after us every day. The zip wire has been on my bucket list for a while, and I thought now was the perfect opportunity to merge my two goals and fundraise for TASC. Launched in 2015, TASC is the national charity dedicated to caring for those who care for us and provides mental, physical and financial well-being, support and advice to help ensure the UK's life-saving ambulance community is strong, healthy and ready to be there for us when we need them. As well as the challenge of raising funds, Mr Higby, who is also training to be a community first responder with East of England Ambulance Service, has been working incredibly hard to shed £28 to meet Zip World's weight limit. Mr Higby said, When I first signed up, I was around 21 stone, and I need to be around 19 stone to take part. Shedding the pounds has been another personal goal of mine and I've been doing everything I can to reach my target. I'm more determined than ever to be ready to zoom over Wales on August 31st. He aims to raise £1,000 and is already over halfway, which could help TSC. Jasmine Rana from TASC said, We're so grateful that Ed is taking on this challenge to support our cause and raise vital funds for task. Ambulance staff have one of the most stressful jobs in the UK 
and the continuing and long-term impacts of coronavirus are making that job much harder. At TASC, we're seeing demand for our services growing, and this is rapidly increasing as our life-saving ambulance staff experience the mental, physical and financial impacts of the pandemic. With the support of people like Ed, TASC can continue to be there for the UK's lifesavers when they are struggling and need a bit of help themselves. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Please remove the memory stick from the playback unit and close the metal shield. Remember to reverse the plastic address label on the yellow pouch before posting it back to us. Please do this as soon as possible, as we sometimes run out of labels and pouches and are then unable to continue our service to you. If you wish to contact us, simply put a slip of paper in your pouch and we will then phone you. So it only remains for me to thank the Whitney Gazette for the stories we have used tonight. Thanks also to our technical expert, Eric Imerson, our copiers, John Ashwell and Marnie Leach, who will be copying the the memory sticks and sending them out to you, our admin uh, operatives, Doreen Turner and Lynn Hardy, and our two readers who have been uh, uh, John Ashwell and Marnie Leach. So I'd like uh, everybody to say goodbye until our next edition. So goodbye. goodbye. TNF Soundings. Features from across the UK. And now the audio described television programmes for the week commencing Saturday the 14th of August 2021. And the day starts with Nature's Miracle Orphans on BBC One at 10am. Lucy Cook helps a white rhino calf learn to be wild. Bargain Hunt is on BBC One at 1.15pm. Today they're in Newmarket and this programme is on at about this time every day. At 2.45pm on BBC One you can escape to the country. This programme is also on every day at this time and today the search is on in the high wheeled. You could be rolling in knit on ITV at 6.30pm. Three contestants hope to win a fortune on the roll of a coin. At 6.45pm, the feature film Pirates of the Caribbean is on BBC One, and this is the fifth film in the series, and is subtitled Salazar's Revenge. At 7, on Channel 4, Matt Baker, Our Farm in the Dales, continues as Matt has plans to increase their biodiversity. The Void is on ITV at 7.30pm. Can the contestants stay dry and win £25,000 while navigating their way above a tank of 520,000 litres of water? On Channel 4 at 8pm, Living Wild, How to Change Your Life. Three couples explain how they have changed their lives to be closer to nature. A new series of Casualty starts at 8.45 on BBC One. In this feature-length episode, Ethan is rushed into the emergency department. There's a spy thriller feature film on Channel 4 at 9. Red Sparrow, a young Russian woman, is sent to entrap a CIA agent, but then considers being a double agent. And if you like a laugh to end the day, the disaster spoof film Airplane is on ITV4 at 9pm. 
a shell shock pilot takes control of a passenger jet when the crew falls ill. Now into Sunday, the 15th of August. How about starting the day at the auction? Homes Under the Hammer on BBC One at 11.15am looks at homes in London, Staffordshire and Derbyshire. There's another Bond film on ITV at 1.35pm. Sean Connery stars as James in From Russia With Love. Back to BBC One at 5 past 5 for Spy in the Wild. Cameras travel to the poles to spy on penguins, puffins and fox cubs. Simon Reeve continues his journey around the Tropic of Cancer at 6pm on BBC Two, today travelling from Bangladesh to Burma. Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince is on ITV at 10 past 6, and this is the sixth film of the series. Part 2 of Bleak House is on the Drama Channel at 6.50pm this evening. Tolkien Horn investigates Nemo's death. At 8, there's a choice between the secret world of crisps on Channel 4, charting how the big brands of crisps stay ahead of their rivals. Or join David Attenborough, who's examining the lives of hippos, Africa's river giants, on BBC Two. A three-way choice at 9, part 5 of Baptiste on BBC One, Emma and Julian make a terrifying discovery. Or Professor T on ITV, the professor befriends a girl who he thinks witness a murder. Or on Channel 4, the penultimate part of The Handsmaid Tale, and tonight's episode is Progress. To round off the day, join Dr. John McGavin as his team explores the natural history of nature's turtle nursery, secrets from the nest, and the mass-synchronised nesting of the species. Then on Monday, the 16th of August, now the Olympics have closed... All the soaps return to their usual places in the schedule, all of them being audio described. There's more homes under the hammer at 10am on BBC One, with properties in Kent, Staffordshire and the West Midlands. At 11.45am on BBC One, watch as thieves are caught red-handed as they are in the mood for dancing. The Coroner is rerun on BBC One at 1.45pm and this is part one of the first series. A teenager is found dead at the foot of a tower. WPC 56 is on BBC One at 2.30pm. The team must decide where their loyalties lie. And these four programmes are all on at the same time each weekday. Downton Abbey continues its rerun on ITV3 all this week at 6.55pm. The shadow over the preparations for the wedding. At 8pm on ITV... James Martin's Highlands and Islands. The chef returns to his native Yorkshire and James Cook's Tea Smoke Trout with Brian Turner. Also at 8, but on Channel 4, Food Unwraps Healthy Hacks. Jimmy Doherty travels to India to find out how pomegranates are helping fight Alzheimer's. Part 2 of Ghosts is on BBC One at 830 Ghost Julian, the MP, is reminded of the day he had a heart attack and joined the ghosts, and the sweet peasant girl Katie is concerned what had become of the loose women she's been watching on TV. Multiple choices at nine. BBC One has Celebrity Masterchef. The celebrity start by creating a meal from ingredients revealed from under the cloche. Or eight days to the moon and back. 
a drama documentary on BBC Two at Nine, exploring the 1969 journey which culminated with Neil Armstrong becoming the first man to walk on the moon. What was it really like? Watch Channel 4, also at 9, Children of 9-11, the story of six young people whose fathers were killed in the 9-11 attack on the World Trade Center. Tuesday the 17th, and starting at 7pm on BBC One with Keeping Up with the Mallies, Our Lives. What does it mean to be small in a world designed for average-sized people? Ray Mears continues his Wild China on ITV at 7.30pm and the adventurer encounters Tibetan foxes and tiny peekers before coming face to face with a brown bear. Holby City is on BBC One at 7.50 and Evie is drawn deeper into Jenny's world. Alan Titchmas helps some senior citizens to Love Your Garden on ITV at 8pm. Or you could look into The Secret Life of the Zoo on Channel 4, also at 8. The Otter family give birth to four pups. Richard E. Grant continues to write around the world at 9pm on BBC 4. He's in Andalusia in southern Spain, following Laurie Lee and Ernest Hemingway. Also at 9, but on ITV, the final part of Cooking with the Stars, who will be crowned the series champion. Lastly, at 10, on Channel 4, the final part of Johnny Blade's camp. Johnny ramps up the training for the five young amputees to achieve their goals. Now on to Wednesday, the 18th of August, starting in the evening at 7pm on BBC One with Aberdeen Harbour, Our Lives, an insight into the running of the harbour. Lots of choice at 8pm, the repair shop on BBC One, the team repair a rugby trophy, a Victorian sewing machine, and a theodolite. Or Craig and Bruno on ITV end their great British road trip in Scotland and taking a Highland Games masterclass. There's a new series of changing rooms on Channel 4 at 8 with Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen and Anna Richardson changing a house in Swansea. Or the final part of Earth from Space on BBC 4. At 9pm, Fake or Fortune on BBC 1 and the team investigate whether the picture of the Last Supper owned by a Welsh farmer was really painted by Benjamin West. Also at nine, but on Channel 4, George Clark's remarkable renovations looks at an old cattle shed in Stockport and its conversion into a living space. Now Thursday the 19th, the Yorkshire Firefighters concludes at eight on BBC Two and the team race to a blaze in a chair factory. Joe Lysett's Got You Back is a new consumer programme on Channel 4 at 8. Joe takes on big brands, scammers and rogue traders. The final part of A Year in the Beacons is on ITV at 8.30pm. As the summer arrives, the mountain rescue team is inundated with calls. Mark Taylor, the MD of Pickfords, is the undercover big boss on ITV at 9. He hopes to find out why it is so difficult for Pickfirst to recruit the next generation of workers. And if you would like a good drama, how about An Inspector Calls on BBC4 at 9pm. David Thewlis steals the show as he plays Inspector Ghoul. And finally to Friday the 20th of August, and this begins at 7pm on BBC1 with Strictly Judge Shirley Ballas asking, Who do you think you are?
at 8pm on Channel 4, Epic Wales, Valleys, Mountains and Coast, is in Pembrokeshire photographing puffins. Father Brown is on the Drama Channel at 8, and the father is trapped in a derelict building by a former Music Hall star in The Crackpot or The Empire. Endeavour is on ITV at 8.30pm, and in tonight's episode, Apollo, the young Morse investigates a tragic road accident. Celebrity Masterchef continues at 9 on BBC One, and the three remaining celebrities must create a two-course meal to Greg and John's exacting standards. Also at 9, but on Channel 4, Deceit continues looking at the Met's investigation of the murder of Rachel Nickel. Undercover officer Lizzie James is exchanging letters with the Met's prime suspect, Colin Stagg. The Berlin's a scandalous family continues on BBC Two at nine and dazzles King Henry VIII. And the thriller The Born Supremacy is the late film on ITV starting at five past eleven. Jason Bourne finds his life is in danger when he is implicated in the killing of an agent in Germany. Well, that's it, and I hope you find something of interest in the selection this week. DNF Soundings. DNF Soundings. Features from across the UK. Now for a look at some of this coming week's radio highlights, starting with Saturday, August 14th. Why not get the weekend off to a lively and interesting start for an hour by tuning to Radio 4 at 9 o'clock for Start the Week, the magazine programme introduced by the Reverend Richard Coles and Nicky Beddy. Oscar Wilde's play A Woman of No Importance comes to Radio 4 Extra at 4pm until 5.30. At a country house party, Mrs Arbuthnot's long-concealed secret comes back to haunt her. The play stars Diana Rigg and Martin Jarvis. Radio 4 at 8 o'clock until 9 brings us a fascinating insight into the life of the highly intelligent and creative director of opera and drama and the comedian and writer Dr Jonathan Miller in Lost Memories, in which his son William searches for answers to his father's death from Alzheimer's. He examines the extensive archive his father left and shares memories with family and friends. Sunday, August 15th, Classic FM, breakfast, 7am till 10am, Alla Jones presents his favourite classical music, including at 8.15, Choral Classic, and at 9am, the Classic FM Hall of Fame. By way of contrast, you might enjoy Radio 2 between 1 and 3, when musical theatre star Elaine Page celebrates the music of Broadway, Hollywood and the West End. Radio 4 at 3pm broadcasts Ibsen's classic drama The Master Builder, which has been adapted by David Hare and stars David Schofield. A self-made builder dominates his hometown, but fears being displaced by younger rivals. And on a lighter note, 7.15 Radio 4, half hour of Michael Frayn's Magic Mobile, a series of comedy monologues and dialogues from this prolific author, starring David Suchet, Susanna Fielding and Joanna Lumley. On to programmes then which are broadcast at the same time each day, throughout the week, Monday to Friday. So same radio station, same time, Monday to Friday. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You get it. Radio 4, 9.45am, Hello Stranger, 
Philosopher and traveller Will Buckingham explores man's complex relationship with strangers. Just after midday on Radio 4, right throughout the week, the mermaid of Black Conch, a fisherman on a Caribbean island, encounters a mermaid and helps her to resist the curse that has cost her her human form. Alternatively, on Radio 3, it's Composer of the Week. At noon, the composer under the spotlight this week is Corelli. Radio 4 at 1.45, a history of the world in a hundred objects. Director of the British Museum, Neil McGregor, retells the history of human development using a selection of a hundred objects from the museum. Classic FM, every night, 7 o'clock and 10 o'clock, smooth classics. And of course, as it's August, right throughout the week, 7.30, Radio 3, the BBC Proms, each night Monday to Friday on Radio 3. On to individual items then for the rest of the week and Monday, August 16th. Radio 4 at 9am. How to play Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Violinist Rachel Podger explores Vivaldi's Four Seasons while in rehearsal with the Academy of Ancient Music. This should be a fascinating insight into one of the nation's favourite pieces of classical music. At 8pm on Radio 4, Ian Hislop looks at This Union, Mercia, and explores the story of the great Mercian kings, meets members of the present-day Mercian regiment, and tries his hand at a spot of metal detecting. Keris Matthews hosts another edition of The Blues Show on Radio 2 at 9. She presents a selection of music from the blues scene, featuring new releases and classic tracks. On to Tuesday, August 17th, on Radio 4 Extra at 11 o'clock for an hour, the ever-interesting series Archive on 4 reruns its documentary The Pound in Your Pocket. In 1967, Harold Wilson's government devalues Sterling and the country panics. Francis Cairncross covers the story of the day Wilson assured the country that nevertheless the pound in your pocket was still worth the same. Radio 4 at 4.30 brings us another episode in the series of Great Lives. The subject this time is the tennis player Althea Gibson. Althea raised in the streets of Harlem became the first black tennis player to win a Wimbledon title. We learn of her remarkable life in a programme presented by Matthew Paris. A popular programme with our listeners comes to Radio 4 at 8.40. In touch, as it's a Tuesday night, Peter Wright introduces a programme of news, views and information for people who are blind or partially sighted. Wednesday, August 18th. And today's selection opens with one more time. Steve Pink's Radio Nightmares, Radio 4 Extra at 11am. Steve digs out the funniest live radio bloopers. That's unintentional mistakes to you and me. I edit mine out so you don't hear them. Anyway, from the BBC archive and provides access to his own collection. Should provide a lot of laughs. The BBC Proms on Radio 3 at 7.30, as I mentioned earlier, is slightly unusual as it features an evening of jazz with saxophonist and composer Nubia Garcia. And at 9pm on Radio 4, in a programme that might appeal to those of us worried about our forgetfulness and memory lapses, in Made of Stronger Stuff, two psychologists take a look at the brain hippocampus, which is central to the formation of memories. They also look at memory tests and techniques for improving our memory. One thing, don't forget to tune in. Thursday, August 19th. We begin 
On Radio 4, at 9am, with citizens of somewhere, Milton Keynes. Journalist John Harris visits Milton Keynes, founded in 1967, to talk to people there about their lives and how they see their future in a town often caricatured as soulless and full of concrete. Also on Radio 4 at 11.30, Planet Back, Clemency Burton Hill. The presenter has listened to or played back every day for as long as she can remember. However, in January 2020, she suffered a brain hemorrhage and everything changed. The programme recounts her gradual return to her daily encounters with her beloved bark. Radio 4 Extra at 2.30, The First Private Eye. Crime writer Val McDermott launches her own private investigation into Alan Pinkerton, the Glasgow-born man who gave the world the term private eye. And Friday, August 20th, to round off the week, an earlier time of 2 o'clock, Radio 3 broadcasts a prom featuring the violinist Nicola Benedetti, who teams up with the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain for a concert which includes Beethoven. A popular programme for radio listeners goes out at 4.30 on Radio 4, Feedback, Presented by Roger Bolton, you hear listeners' views on radio programmes from the previous week and an opportunity for all of us to agree or disagree with the opinions expressed. Another opportunity to challenge opinions comes from any questions at 8 o'clock on Radio 4. This week's edition comes from Haddenham Village in Buckinghamshire. And if it's all too much, why not end the day relaxing with smooth classics at 10pm on Classic FM. As ever, may I wish you a peaceful, safe and enjoyable week of radio listening. TNF Soundings. 